Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. We are bringing you a conversation with Trent Horn, staff apologist for Catholic Answers, and Eric Cohn, the director of communications here at Acton. In this episode, they discuss Horn's new book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? Some Catholics who claim to be socialists look at government as an altruistic solution, if done correctly, to solve the world's problems with their infinite resources and boundless regulation. The solution is not an overarching government. The solution starts and ends in our homes, where we build virtuous families and care for our communities. As Horn puts it, so we can have confidence and peace that in applying ourselves with hard work and diligence, we can joyfully participate in God's co-creation, a task we are urged to take up for the good of our families and communities. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes at Act in Line on our website at actin.org slash actinline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by Trent Horn. Trent is an adjunct professor of apologetics at Holy Apostles College and has written for the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly and is the author of nine books, including Answering Atheism, The Case for Catholicism, and Why We're Catholic, Our Reasons for Faith, Hope, and Love. After his conversion to the Catholic faith, Trent earned a master's degree in the field of theology, philosophy, and bioethics. He serves as a staff apologist for Catholic Answers, where he specializes in teaching Catholics to graciously and persuasively engage those who disagree with them. He's also the host of the podcast, Council of Trent. His most recent book, which we will be discussing today, is Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? Trent, welcome to Actonline. Thank you for having me. So, Trent, I've done enough of these interviews with people who uh, are authors that I've discovered since I've been hosting this podcast that the one question I think they appreciate being asked the most is, what is your book about? (laughs) Sure. So my book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist, is about the church's teaching on socialism, um, the perennial teaching on socialism, really going all the way back to the middle of the 19th century. So it, it is about the, well, it was about divided into different parts. I start in the book discussing why there's a resurgence in socialism and what motivates people to consider this economic philosophy, thinking that it's the best for the common good, best for society. Uh, then I go back in time, so to speak, to talk about the rise of socialism. And I trace the church's teaching on socialism by doing kind of a historical survey. Uh, my undergrad was in history, so I love studying history. So I go back to the false first socialists. People try to claim the first Christians practice socialism. They practice charity, not communism. And then I move forward through history to talk about the rise of capitalism, then the rise of socialism in the early part of the 19th century, and then how socialism spread through the 19th and 20th centuries, its ill effects after it is it spread throughout the world, and how the church continually in the 1890s, the 1930s, 1960s, 1990s, has continually reaffirmed uh, the evils of socialism and the responsibilities that are inherent in a free market society. And then I defend 
capitalism and a free market approach to economics as being uh, what is most productive for the common good. Uh, and I defend it against typical socialist arguments against it. Let's examine where you start in the beginning of the book with this kind of rebirth of socialism. Why do you think this is happening? Well, I think that uh, when you look back in American history, uh, socialism was very popular in the United States in the 1930s. Uh, historians have called that the heyday of American communism. The American Communist Party will really reach its zenith during the 1930s. And it's no coincidence it did that in the midst of the Great Depression. So my theory is that uh, socialism and communism and its related forms are very popular when people are experiencing economic distress. When they experience economic distress, they sometimes become, they blame that on markets themselves or capitalism or banks and believe that if governments centrally plan the economy, you wouldn't have economic distress. And so you have in the 1930s, like I talk about in my book, how in uh, the novel, uh, The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, it talks about how people thought of the banks as being monsters that men couldn't control and that markets were were this evil thing that they used to oppress poor farmers, even though many of their, much of their plight, actually, they talked about how farmers were destroying uh, oranges, for example, to keep the price of oranges higher. And that's pinned on capitalism, even though actually at the time, it was the federal government that ordered the farmers to do that, just like the government today orders uh, dairy producers to destroy milk to arbitrarily keep the price of milk high. So uh, I do think then if you look at more recent terms, when you have the Great Recession of the latter part of the, the early 2000s, and then the pandemic today, people feel like they cannot, that mark, that you cannot trust human well-being to, to markets or to the free exercise of economic interactions. They think government, if government just planned it, it would be okay. But my book shows when government tries to plan economies, it's never okay. It ends in human misery. What do you make of, so we've had a number of people on this podcast discussing this general idea um, that Lyman Stone in particular from AEI, who had done a huge study on the decline of religiosity in America. And I I am one of the adherents to the theory that the rise of socialism, what we're seeing in people proclaiming to be socialists has a lot less to do with the economics of the idea. A few of them have read Marx, few of them understand real Marxist economic theory. As they have lost the places that have typically provided meaning and a sense of being part of something larger than oneself. And and frequently in history, at least in American history, that has come from uh, church participation, religious faith. As those things have begun to decline, younger people especially are looking for something that will allow them to feel a part of something larger than themselves. And they're replacing that traditional religious role with socialism or wokeism. And as we observe it, it's, it even seems to practice in a similar way as religion. Do you, what, what credence do you give to that more of a cultural argument for why people are embracing it less than the economic side of things? Uh, I think that's correct, though. I do think that economics does play a significant role. Uh, I, I do believe that culturally, um, young people want to seek, uh, and even older people, they want to seek a foundation for uh, their place in the world, their sense of identity. And so you'll have, uh, as you said, wokeism and uh, social justice movements, Black Lives Matter, even the response to the pandemic, people who are very zealous 
about controlling the pandemic, uh, it does turn kind of into a religion for these individuals. There are certain doctrines you have to believe. You can be excommunicated if you don't hold to them on social media or things like that. So I do think you're right that they're seeking that kind of uh, belonging and socialism fits into that. I also think part of it can be the blame can be placed on the breakdown of the family uh, with the rise of divorce and the instability of the family. People are seeking something to provide them uh, support and um, just this kind of stability in life that normally the family, both the immediate family and the extended family would normally provide people, uh, especially when young people go out in the world to work and to make a life for themselves. If their own family is uh, wrecked by divorce and, and other kinds of uh, maladies, they, they look then to government to essentially fill that void that they had in their own lives. However, I do think the economic reasons uh, should certainly not be overlooked. I think we especially have a generation over the past uh, 20 years, I really, I really think over the past 20 years, the, this seed has been sown, who were given horrible advice when it comes to basic economics. They were told, go to the most expensive university you can, take out as many loans as you can. because it's And I was told this. I remember being told this in high school. Uh, follow your dream. Uh, your job should be something that makes you feel fulfilled and happy 24-7. Never stop. Follow your dream. Take out as many loans as you can to follow your dream. And then what's happened? You have people with crushing debt they don't need. They don't have marketable skills in order to make a good living in the free market. And so they, they buy these ideas from Marxists who say things like, you shouldn't have to trade your labor to survive, which sounds nice. Like, yeah, I shouldn't have to trade my labor to avoid surviving. Uh, I, I should just be able to, to live. Government should guarantee that I can live in society. Well, guess what, Cupcake? The human condition is you have to trade labor to survive. That's one thing that infuriates me about this, that these individuals would want a society where no one should have to work to survive. What would happen if nobody worked? We would all die. What you're saying is you want it so you don't have to work, but some other poor schlub, he has to definitely work to, to provide you with all the amenities you want. The fact of the matter is we have to work as human beings to survive in this world. That's the way it is. What system is best for us trading our labor or the things that we own to produce wealth? And uh, time and time again, capitalism has been proven to be that thing. And so what I try to show in the book is that the arguments against capitalism are, are quite shallow, and the evidence for socialism is, uh, is extremely thin. And I just want people to see that. You you reminded me of a, an interview I read once with Robert Lopez, who's uh, the musical writer who um, wrote the pop music to the Disney movie Frozen, whose first musical was about growing up in the generation that I think you're talking about, where you watched a lot of Sesame Street and you were told you're special and you can do anything you want with your life. And he said he wrote his first musical after getting to New York, after getting out of college with a lot of debt and finding out, was that like, you know, okay, I, I get that I'm special in some sense, but not really more than all the other people around me. And my options are actually somewhat limited. And I I, I'm wondering if you 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 have that baseline that you're starting with there, and then for that younger generation, you've also piled on I think three significant incidents that have all perhaps made this worse for them. You had for 
older millennials like me, 9-11 being a huge inflection point and the downturn you had after that. You had the financial crisis in 2008. And then you had the pandemic, which um, is also had huge economic effects in addition to the social and cultural and political effects that it's had. Right. And I, I, I wonder if you think to the extent that you think this is just a confluence of circumstances that has opened up this possibility for people to embrace something that, you know, we thought with the end of the uh, the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union that we had put most of these arguments behind us. Right. And for the generation beyond us, especially the baby boomers and the greatest generation, the people who lived through socialism, what, what happens today in, in the typical arguments you, you'll hear from people is the socialism I'm talking about is not Soviet socialism. It's not Cuban socialism. It's not uh, Venezuelan socialism. It's Denmark, it's Scandinavia, it's Norway. And as I point out in the book very bluntly, these things, those are not socialist countries. They are capitalist countries who practiced some form of socialism in the latter part of the 20th century, realized it was a losing strategy, doubled down on their industries. And through the fact that they're relatively small countries, they're about, their population is about the size of like New York State, uh, but they have abundant natural resources. And so with their homogenous culture, very hardworking cultures in Scandinavia, uh, they can reinvest in their own country to have dividends to provide for their healthcare system and other government benefits, though there's a trade-off. They have very high tax structures. Uh, they have uh, long waiting periods for healthcare, things like that. So you got you have these young people who are, who are looking at all of this and saying, you know, oh, I'm not talking about the Soviet Union. And they don't even know what happened. And that's why I share in my book a lot is that they, the young people today, uh, in fact, a graduate student who was reading my book as part of the proofreading process, said she had never heard these stories about Maoist China or the Soviet Union. Young people are just not taught about that. They're only taught Soviet Union was bad, uh, but now new socialism is good. Well, it's all cut from the same tree. They, they, don't, they don't know why it was bad, why the Soviet Union failed, why were there bread lines in the Soviet Union, even though the Soviet Union produced more wheat than the United States. It's because when government tries to plan society without uh, prices as accurate signals of supply and demand, government always ends up overproducing what people don't want and underproducing what they do want. That's just, that's just the nature of it. So you have these young people who don't understand that is the failure of socialism time and time again. They're the, so the, what they do want are really market-based economies, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, except those also have their, their trade-offs. The fact of the matter is uh, the highest standard of living in the world is not in Scandinavia. It's in Monaco. Monaco has the highest standard of living. But Monaco only has like 700,000 people, and they're all just rich people who, who have their race cars and drive around. It's easy to make a high standard of living when you don't have as many population. But when you look at the countries that have more than 100 million people in them, uh, so wait, we're going way past Scandinavia here, the countries with the highest standard of living, where would you want to live the countries that have more than 100 million people? India, China, Russia. Uh, the, the two that are the highest, the places I want to live are the United States and Japan. And both of these are market-based economies. So it is hard for young people who obviously want to improve the world, and that's a good thing, but they're, they've been sold a, a bad bill of goods and just a flawed methodology for doing that. Let's rewind to the early church. And in that, let's rewind to back in January where um, – Acton's own Reverend Ben Johnson had a piece on Raphael Warnock, now the senator from Georgia, uh, reflecting on a sermon that he gave in, I believe, 2016 
where he told his flock that the early church was a socialist church and called socialism a basic principle. What does he get wrong about the early church? What he gets wrong is trying to describe either Jesus or the first Christians with any modern economic labels doesn't work. Socialism and capitalism talk about the role of the state. It talks about whether the state will, you know, will the state own the means of production or will people own it? Socialists like to say, well, we're talking about the people, the community owning the means of production. But but in a modern world, it, it always ends up being the state that does that. So Warnock and others, when when people say the first Christians were socialists, they go to Acts chapter four and Acts two where it describes the early Christians living communally and sharing what they had. But it doesn't describe the first Christians renouncing private property. People still owned what they had, and they bought and sold property that they owned and gave the proceeds to a communal fund to support, especially in the early church when 3,000 people converted in Jerusalem and wanted to stick around and join the Christian community, they needed to be helped. So they provided out of their abundance for that. But they still retained ownership of these things. Uh, they just bought and sold them to uh, get more funds to help the community. But they did, but that was a, a temporary element in the church's history, not an enduring practice. In the same way that the first Christians worshiped in houses, it doesn't mean that the first principle of Christianity is you have to worship in a house and not a church. Uh, as the Christian church grew larger, you worship in houses was not feasible. So they moved to church buildings, uh, much the same way as the church grew larger, these kind of communal enterprises were no longer feasible. And so, uh, in fact, St. Paul undermines the whole idea that the first Christians were socialists who communally owned all of their possessions and didn't have private property because in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that, uh, I encourage you to be, God loves a cheerful giver. He was encouraging the Corinthians to donate to a fund to help the church suffering from a famine in Judea, but he was encouraging them. If they were socialist, Paul wouldn't have to do that. He could just tell the church in Corinth, gather this much money, send it over here. He didn't do that because the first Christians practiced voluntary generosity, and they were quite generous and, enc and encouraged that virtue. Uh, socialism undermines the principle of generosity because the state does for me what I ought to do for my fellow man. It reminds me of the observation that you, you could, if you wish to live as a communist within a capitalist society, you would be able to do that and organize people to live in your own little subset um, but in a communist country, you, you don't get the option to live as uh, as a capitalist if that is your desire. That's absolutely right. And when you talk about modern socialists, what many of them will say is, I don't want the government owning the means of production. I want government running all the businesses. I just want workers to own it. So they want things like worker cooperatives. Well, here's the thing. In America, you are free to do that. You are absolutely free to start a worker cooperative. There's a Catholic company, Covenant Eyes, who does great uh, so accountability software for pornography, and they've transferred ownership to their 120 employees. Uh, that's great, but it's, it's voluntary to do that. When it works for a company, for their framework, it's good for them to do that. But there are trade-offs in that kind of a business model. I was reading a story about a vegan bakery that was uh, communally owned. Every worker had equal ownership in the company. So that means they all... You know, as people say with capitalism, oh, I don't want to be at the mercy of my capitalist boss. Well, under this uh, cooperative structure, uh, you are at the mercy of bosses. You're at the mercy of everybody else in the company voting on your pay, your well-being. Uh, and so I was talking about how this bakery had a hard time growing because every three months they meet to talk about the direction of the company and they can't make any progress because there's so many there's 
to quote the um, uh, that that uh, famous uh, Adult Swim video, there's there's too many cooks. You know, there's there's too many cooks in the kitchen to allow any progress. So it's no wonder that meant the, probably the most successful companies are are actually not cooperative uh, in that sense to allow for for rapid growth, to provide jobs, things like that. But you're right. Your point stands. You are in a capitalist society. You are free to organize your business structure for communal ownership. Go right ahead, do it. But in a communist society or a socialist society, you you are not free to do that. Uh, if you open up a second location or a second business, uh, you're not allowed to retain the profits from that. You know, we, we have to take that. You you can't get you if you if you start opening too many businesses, you're gonna create wealth inequality. We're going to, you can open up a business, but we're going to mandate you sell the business to somebody else. Well, if that's the case. Why would I go through the effort to open it up if I can't hang on to it? Uh, which uh, that and other issues I, I bring up in the book, of course. Let's fast forward to more modern times. What are the most common arguments that you hear for the, com- either the compatibility of socialism with Christianity, or perhaps a more radical form of the argument that uh, Christianity endorses or requires socialism? Well, there's different arguments I hear. I I think it basically goes to the idea that Christianity, we have a duty to help the poor. And so that is true. But then the mistaken premise that follows from that is that socialism is the best way to help the poor. And so defenders of socialism will say that capitalism and free market economies are based only on profit, not about helping people. And so the mistaken view they have is that because capitalism's goal is not to help the poor, Christians can't be capitalists. They have to be socialists because socialism's goal is to eradicate poverty and make sure resources are allocated in an equitable manner. Uh, the fallacy here is that Christians should choose not the model that claims to help the poor, but the model that actually does help the poor. That's what they should. Um, that's what they should choose. So that's the fallacy, I think, in the argument that, as I show in my book, socialism creates poverty and misery because it uh, it destroys the incentive to create wealth. Socialists have this misunderstanding that. Wealth is a fixed thing. And Christians uh, who adopt socialism, they'll take Jesus's commands and his admonishments of the rich. They'll apply first century remedies to poverty to 21st century situations, which doesn't make sense. Like Jesus tells us to heal the sick, but that doesn't mean we only have to use prayer or first century remedies. We, can, we use modern medicine to carry out Jesus's first century command to heal the sick. So we should use modern economics to carry out his first century command to help the poor. Because I think a lot of socialists just, you know, if they're Christian, well, the Bible tells us what to do for the poor, give the poor money. That's a first century approach to eradicating poverty. And the fact of the matter is, it does not create wealth. It will temporarily alleviate poverty for some individuals, but it will not make giving people money foreign aid, wealth transfer, that has never created a wealthy society in the history of the world. It just never has. But when you look at places like Hong Kong, for example, that began in poverty, they rose out of poverty uh, because of free markets and they created wealth. Socialists think wealth is fixed and we have to divvy it up. Capitalists believe, no, you can create wealth in interactions when people are benefited. Wealth is, when there are surplus goods created because of a division of labor, that is the the, the recipe that, that creates wealth. So I, I think that's um, part of it there. Um, also, uh, the, the arguments that they use 
uh, yeah, they're, they're always kind of shifting the goalposts. I was thinking about making a video about this recently, but Richard Wolff, who is a well-known socialist, was writing about this. He was putting out a video the other day and talking about how ca- has capitalism, it has not reduced poverty. And I was like, that is an amazing claim for, for him to make. Uh, the ca- because capitalism has done in 200 years what, the, what humanity could not do in 20,000 years. In 1820, 94% of people lived in extreme poverty or under $2 a day. Today, that's less than 10%. And so I was watching the video and Wolf claims that, well, that $2 a day figure is... Um, it's an unrealistic number. Nobody can live on $2 a day. The fact of the matter is there are people in extremely poor parts of the world who live awful in awful conditions. They live barely, but they live on $2 a day. And thankfully, that's been declining. So Wolf in the video is saying, if you adjust it to $7.40 a day, that number has increased in the past 40 years. So capitalism has made things worse. What Wolf doesn't get in his argument, though, and when you look at data from where he, he's drawing from, like the, the World Bank, uh, the reason the 740 a day percentile has grown, if you think about it after just two seconds to think about it, is because people are migrating from the $2 a day and the $5 a day percentiles, and they're going up into the $7 a day percentile. The reason that has gotten bigger is because the, the absolute worst conditions have, have gotten better. Uh, so that is, um, and, and more people today are making over $10 a day, which is the highest rung on the, on the world bank. So that's the other thing I think, um, what, uh, Christian socialists will argue is they'll say, look at these deplorable conditions of workers. And in capitalism, you, you, you go through a sequence that worker conditions improve. Um, you know, the, the earliest you have is agrarian existence. Like you had in, in, uh, peasant, uh, Europe, you know, 400 years ago. Then you had industrial existence in Manchester, England in the 19th century, which was crowded and awful. Look at the tenements in New York City. But it continues to get better. So Christian socialists will say, I want it perfect now. I want everyone to have a good, healthy, clean, well-paying job right now. And they think that if government just used its muscle, we could get there immediately. But that's just not what happens. That's not what happens. You have to go through a natural organic process to move people up in that way. And they just they just can't see the forest for the trees in that regard. In part four of your book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? Chapter 13 is called Capitalism and Human Nature. What is the connection between the two? Right. So one of the things that we talk about, when you look at Pope Leo XIII's encyclical, Rerum Novarum, he makes arguments against socialism. And this is in the 1890s when he's writing. And so they're principle-based arguments. He's saying, here's what's wrong with it. There's a natural right to private property. Socialists want to take what is acquired by work or lawful inheritance, that which people have a natural right to, a natural right to, to own things, to own businesses, to own capital, to be able to reinvest it. And so he makes these principled arguments. As you go forward in church history, the arguments get supplemented by real world experiences of where socialism fails. But he, he makes good arguments about human nature saying that if everyone was, he said, socialism brings humanity down to one dead level. And if your goal in socialism is to reduce classes, there is no rich, no poor, there, there are no classes. Um, production is owned communally. It, uh, wealth is distributed equally among people. If you do that, you destroy the natural human incentive to work. 
uh, if you if you follow that framework. As I talk about in the book, I give an example uh, from the pilgrims. When the pilgrims came to the United States, uh, all of the farming was done communally. And so you, no matter how hard you worked, you always got the same rations. Because of that, people got lazier and lazier and their food production plummeted and they nearly starved to death. Governor Bradford of the colony reorganized it and said, okay, you can keep what you grow. And then the food production increased. It's like the bathroom rule. Uh, I don't care how much of a slob you are. The, the bathroom at your house is going to be cleaner than the bathroom at a public park. That's just, that's just the way it is. When you own something, you take care of it. Uh, when you don't own it, you don't really care about it. So when socialists will, so that's why when you look at the Soviet Union and people did not keep profits from what they, they created, they just tried to get more funding. Uh, there was no incentive to, to do a good job. That's why there was a famous Soviet cartoon of there's a very famous Soviet cartoon penned during the Soviet Union era at a factory of them hauling off a hundred ton nail. Why is there a picture of them with a hundred ton nail? Because the factories were judged not on the profits they made, because there were no profit measures, but by whether they met the target goals the government set for them. So if the government said with nails, okay, we need you to produce 10,000 tons of nails. Well, then if it was easier to make a million 10 pound nails uh, then they would do that, even if the nails were clunky and useless, because it was easier to meet the target goal. Uh, or if it's like, well, we need you to make a million nails. Fine, we'll make a million tiny nails that can't do anything, uh, because there, there wasn't that incentive. Uh, and you, saw, you see the same thing with Venezuela, how when the profit motive was lost, uh, there was no incentive for the, the supermarkets, the utility companies. And they ended up there, you know, you go to Caracas, there was, you know, there's no water, there's no electricity. Uh, you know, the, the uh, supermarkets are laid bare, even though the government was supposed to fund them. So groceries would be essentially free. Human nature, and I guess this is when it comes to capitalism, and it's true, socialists make a good point. There are, there's a natural human tendency when you own a business to want to get your workers to do work for free. There is that natural selfish tendency. But there is also the selfish tendency to want to get paid without working. It goes both ways. Capitalism is the only system that helps to guard against those natural selfish tendencies in the best way to prevent owners from being able to get work for free and workers from getting payment without working. It's the best system we have to, uh, to guard against those selfish interests and to indirectly move our self-interest to the benefit of other people. Curious what you make of some of the pronouncements and writings from Pope Francis. Uh, there have been people who have accused him of being some form of a socialist or a Marxist. Um, I'm reminded of uh, a joke I was told a while back that if we knew there was only one Marxist left in the world, that person would probably be a professor at a university in South America. Right. Um, so certainly Pope Francis has had experience with different notions, perhaps, of capitalism or what I think we might call cronyism rather than actual capitalism, right. um, as well as socialism in South America. What do you make of you know his experience that informs uh, the writings that he has offered on some of these topics? Well, what I think is that when I read the writings of Pope Francis, I don't find a defender of socialism. I find a very fierce critic of capitalism. They're not the same thing. You go back to On the Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Uh, it wouldn't be right to call him a capitalist per se, 
but he was certainly the, the founding father of modern economics. Uh, he saw the benefit of free markets, but Smith was very critical of the deficiencies in free markets. He talked about how merchants, free markets have a danger because merchants will conspire together to keep prices artificially high, for example. He was under no illusion that free markets were perfect, and he, he uttered very potent criticisms of the market. And Pope Francis does the same thing, and there are criticisms that can be made. What I find just unfortunate is that, and I'm fine with criticisms of the market. What I'm not okay with is making these criticisms and not offering anything substantive to move the discussion forward. And that's what I see in Fratelli Tutti and and, uh, Laudato Si. Uh, I, I see these kinds of kind of empty criticisms about economies that kill without saying, well, under socialism, more people have died under socialism than under any other economic system. Uh, when you look at the economic system itself. So now I think, though, Pope Francis, he, when he gave an address to Congress in 2016, actually praised the role of business and talked about how he had to reassess some of the things he had said about markets. So I do think he has uh, things that are important to say. And it is important because markets are not a panacea. Uh, markets can, you know, are an opportunity for for generosity, but they, they, oh, they won't do it by themselves. Like, I'll give you an example. There was that a Christian CEO of, uh, it was like a credit card company. And he changed his company policy so that all the workers made at least $75,000 a year. He took a big pay cut to do that. And some conservative talk radio host said, this is just socialism. And I was like hitting my head. I'm like, that's not socialism. It's his company. It's his salary. He has the right to set the salaries however he wants to. And is he paying more for the labor than it's worth? Yeah, but guess what? When I go to a restaurant and I decide to be generous and give someone a $20 tip on a $40 meal, you know, am I practicing socialism? No, I'm being generous knowing that this person did a good job and I want to really bless them and I want to help them especially if they're having a hard time getting by. I have it's like in Jesus's parable about the um the man who hired the people to work. Are you jealous of my generosity? Basically that so in in doing that uh, even if you know the market does provide for people, it's as I said, it's a slow progress to to lift people up. Christian generosity can speed that up when you provide very you know generous compensation for employees and and for um, for, for things like that. So I think that Pope Francis, what he says, that there are very valuable insights that people who defend free markets need to incorporate. But on the other hand, his skepticism of the market, I do think, is over is is highly overrated. I think one reason for that, honestly, is that as the Archbishop of Buenos Aires, he presided over Argentina's largest city during its worst economic crisis of all time, the Argentinian Depression of the 1990s. It was just really, really bad what went on there. And so I think, like I said earlier in the interview, that when you live through economic instability, you can develop a deep skepticism of markets as a result, even though economic instability is, is a natural thing as, as economies and markets grow. Uh, trying to get it under uh, socialism, you're right, it becomes stable. It's just a bad kind. It's just badness and misery is something that just endures in a stable kind of way. So I, I don't know if that's a helpful answer. Yeah, I think if we take um, the best form of those arguments, uh, perhaps the biggest frustration, and I think you raised this point, is that we, we tend to look at it in a very reductivist way, that if he's offering a criticism of markets or of capitalism, then it must imply an endorsement for socialism, almost as if it's like a, a sliding scale between a binary. And the more that you move in one direction implies the, the greater endorsement of, uh, of, of that direction. And I, I'm reminded 
reminded of the line of argument from Irving Kristol, who who authored a book, Two Cheers for Capitalism. And his Two Cheers for Capitalism is that it is an enabling of human freedom, and he believed human freedom to be a good in and of itself, right. and that it is the single greatest tool for the alleviation of poverty and misery that the world has ever seen. But the missing third cheer is that it doesn't tell you how to live. Right. And that seems to be the missing part for, uh, for me in a lot of these conversations is that you need things like the teaching of the church, which tells you how to live in addition to a market system that takes care of the first two things to which Irving was offering the cheers. So it becomes a necessary condition for human flourishing, but it's not a sufficient condition for human flourishing. Right. And I think a point you made earlier about, well, why are Christians for socialism? Uh, I think sometimes their interactions with those who defend free markets or capitalism, I would say, I don't agree with these people either. They'll say, well, you know, we don't want to believe that greed is good. The only people who say that are like Ayn Rand objectivists who, you know, Ayn Rand writing the virtue of selfishness. And to Rand's credit, she lived through socialism. She lived through that and had, a, you know, a, a a chip on her shoulder to vociferously argue against it. But just because you, or there are other, there are other economic economists that I agree with this idea, just like we have to recognize there's a, a variance of socialism. Uh, there are variants of, of different forms of looking at capitalism. If you believe in free markets, uh, there's a difference between, um, well, like Mil I think it was Milton Friedman Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was Milton Friedman who said the only responsibility a company has is to its shareholders. Correct. Uh, yeah, that the only responsibility a company has is to play by the rules, don't break any laws, don't commit fraud, and provide returns to your shareholders. That's one view of acting in a free market economy. There are other capitalists like John Mackey from Whole Foods who would say, no, a company has more, has a social responsibility to use its place as a business to make society better. Uh, and that goes beyond just the interests of the shareholders, the interests of the consumers, the workers, society as a whole. And that's a, a debate to have as to what's more effective in that regard. But to just say, oh, well, all, all capitalism is bad because look at these few capitalists. I would agree. And that's why my book is not just simply socialism is bad because look at Lenin, look at Mao. I would say they're the most prevalent examples of socialism in the 20th century. But even when you examine so-called democratic socialism that Richard Wolff argues for. When you get to the nitty gritty details, uh, you see it's just as uh, disturbing. Wolf says, you know, in democratic socialism, the workers will own the means of production, worker like large scale worker cooperatives. But a central authority is going to decide which people work where, for example. Uh, you know, so uh, when I look at these things or just they, they haven't thought it through. That's what bugs me so much about socialists. I want you to think through your proposal. I'll give you another example. There was a housing advocate in New York City. And so with the pandemic, obviously, a lot of people can't pay their rent. And it's very, it's concerning. It's absolutely concerning. And we can discuss it's not socialist for the government to just cut people a check to help them to pay their rent. Government can spend money on people without being socialist. Particularly what, what, when a lot of the circumstances were created by government by the actions. Government. Yes. Yeah, when the government tells you, you can't have to shut down your business and you can't work. Okay, fine, you're telling me I can't work. You can pay me during this time since you're saying I can't work. That government should remedy the ill that it caused with its own lockdowns. But what in New York, this housing advocate was saying, what we want is not just rent reform, more landlord reform, 
she said, my ideal system is where you pay 30% of your income on housing into a communal fund. And so you get housing based on that. So if you make $0 a year, you pay $0 a year for housing. If you make a million dollars a year, you pay $300,000 a year on housing and you just get housing that the government assigns to you. Okay, here's my first question. Who gets to live in Malibu? Who gets to live in uh, Tahoe? Uh, you know, if, if, if my 30% of my income goes no matter what, uh, which is more than what a lot of people pay on housing now, uh, where do I get, can I pick where I live? I don't get to, I, I don't get to own my home. I just get to, I'm essentially paying rent 30% of my income to the government. Well, everybody, why can't we all live in, I loved living in San Diego. It was beautiful. Everyone would want to choose that. Well, what's going to happen? Well, the government is going to say, oh, well, these people get to live here. Who gets to live here? The people with the connection to the bureaucrats, which is what socialism always ends up entailing. They just don't think it through to the end. And it's immensely frustrating to see that. In the bio that I read for you at the beginning of this conversation, um, it spoke of your role as a staff apologist for Catholic Answers. You specialize in teaching Catholics to graciously and persuasively engage those who disagree with them. Let's conclude with this. What is the clearest and most succinct argument, way of persuading somebody who you find making the case for one's uh, Christian faith necessitating socialism? What is the, to you, what have you found to be the best argument to push back against that idea? The best argument is to just attack the person's definition of socialism, to say, uh, Christianity allows the government to do many things for us, but it prohibits the government taking things away from us, like our ability to freely choose the job we want to work in, to freely choose what kind of business we want to operate. And I would say when you look in scripture, uh, what does it say about helping the poor? It mandates for us to give of our of our wealth to help the poor. It never tells us to set up a central government to do that. So I, I think that really there's not like a silver bullet line unless you want to just go to, look, go back to Pope Pius XI. If you want your most silver bullet, you can go to Pope Pius XI who said, no good Catholic can be a true socialist in uh, his encyclical Quadrigesimo Anno. So that's like the most simplest reply I could give. The next one up would be to say, if your view of socialism is that government spends money to help people, Christians can reasonably disagree about that. If your view is that government takes away uh, people's ability to provide for themselves and others, well, Christianity says thou shalt not steal. And that is what government does when it takes away a man's, uh, a person's ability to provide for himself for others and to provide for the common good. Uh, and then I think ultimately, I, I think my silver bullet is to make them define socialism. It's not government spending money. It's government planning economies then to say, when has that ever worked? And then to point out that capitalism, no matter how many times it succeeds, these people always see it as a failure. But socialism, no matter how many times it fails, is always proposed as the way forward and to make them defend its, its sordid history. Trent Horn is an adjunct professor of apologetics at Holy Apostles College and serves as a staff apologist for Catholic Answers. He's the author of nine books. The most recent is Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? Trent, thank you so much for joining us today on Act Online. Thank you for having me. 
As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actinline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actinline, I'm Gabriel Jaja.